Thank you, team. I want to read our main passage of Scripture this morning from Hebrews chapter 10 and then lead us into prayer based on this text of Scripture. We're going to pray this morning. I'm just following a very sort of common outline of prayer to adore God, to confess our sins, to ask Him to act on His own word, and then to thank Him for who He is. In the process, we'll be praying not only for ourselves, but for our friends at Gresham Bible Church, which is a church that we know well. And this text will apply to them as well. Reading from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 27, God's word says this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is God's word for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning as your church, one church gathered as much as we can be right now, but nonetheless gathered to acknowledge that we are indeed one church before you, one group of people that is part of a much, much larger group of people that extends all around this globe, a group of people that's so large it is actually not even limited by the present time but it extends far back in time, encompassing countless millions and millions of people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and entered into a relationship of salvation and joy with you forever. That is one group of people. And so God, as as we come before you now, we first of all want to come acknowledging and worshiping you for seeking to accomplish so great a vision, a, a worldwide vision redemption. And you've told us in your word that your, your heart is, is, is a glorious heart, your vision is a glorious vision that, that all nations, all tribes, all tongues would be around your throne for all eternity, an innumerable mass of creation worshiping you, which is exactly the way you meant it to be in the first place when you made everything. And we look forward to that day. God, that vision is much larger than my puny little mind often extends to. But that is normal for you. That is your mind, your expansive vision to redeem an unworthy creation, to experience your love and grace, and to worship you forever. God, we worship you for being huge. We worship you for being infinite. We worship you for having plans and purposes that far outstrip the things that normally consume us. And so, God, that leads us to to confess that we do not often live up to the vision that you have made us a part of as people of God, as, as women and men whose lives have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and are being transformed by the grace of Christ into your image. We lament just how much more transformation we need to go through. We lament and confess to you as sin our individualism. How we we see life as primarily about us and our families and friends and those around us rather than seeing life as ultimately about you and your family and your great redemptive purposes. We confess to you that we see your church at times as a place to serve us and meet our needs and provide an opportunity for us to find fulfillment rather than seeing your church as a people you've called together to yourself to whom we can minister and with whom we can share to accomplish your great purposes of redemption. God, in confessing these things to you, I pray that you would cleanse us, cleanse me from the smallness of our vision. Cleanse us for preferring comfort over life. Cleanse us for preferring, as C.S. Lewis once so artfully said, the mud pies in the slum versus the great glories of yourself in eternity that you have for us. God, forgive us for these things and make us better. 
Make us, in fact, what you've made us to be, but we have failed to become. Make us a people who long for your glory, who long to be a part of what you're doing, who would not trade the greater for the lesser, who would never be satisfied with the lesser, but would always pursue you. I pray, Father God, that you would make this church, Harvest Community Church, a shining testament to your family, a people fueled by your vision for redemption and captivated by your beauty. I pray that you would make us a people where where everyone is welcomed as image bearers because we see those that walk through our doors or tune onto our live stream not so much by their gender or the color of their skin or what they're wearing or how they sound, but we see them first and foremost as bearers of your image, people for whom you died to redeem and to make a part of your worldwide vision. God, may that be our vision. And I pray that those people would experience a compelling community when they enter the doors of this church, or interact with the people of this church. A community where people are hungering and thirsting for something more than comfort, stability, financial security, and our own personal friend networks. A place where people are not content simply to live out life comfortable, but where we are passionately committed to the much greater good of your eternal glory. And I pray, Father, that 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 spark that they would see in us would light within them the spark you have placed in them as an image bearer to live for your glory, to confess their sins, to find redemption in Christ. God, would you use this church to redeem thousands of lives here in our city over these coming months and years. We adore you, God, that we can come before you and make a prayer like this. We adore you for that. I thank you that we are partnered with other churches in the same task. I especially want to pray the same prayers. I just prayed for us, for our friends across the river at Gresham Bible Church. My friend Josh Howarth, who's pastoring there. God, we pray for Josh, especially as he leads his congregation, even this morning. Uh, Josh took that role right before COVID hit and is a new pastor getting used to a church that is now so disrupted. That's been a tremendous challenge, I know. And what's more, they don't own a building. They've always had rented space. So they don't have a place like this where they can immediately gather. God, we pray a special blessing on that church. They love you as we do. They seek to serve you as we do. And we pray that you would give them success as they launch their ministry this fall. Unite them together. May they be a great gospel witness in Gresham, even as you make us one here in Hillsboro. So God, we just, we thank you. We adore you for making us part of your family, of your vision. We adore you for saving us into your family. We praise your generosity, your grace, and your loving salvation that has made us for far more than we could ever attain on our own and that did not quit when we rebelled against you, but in love and grace you came after us. We were praise you would receive the worship of a grateful people now, even as we ask you to teach us and change us. We ask this for our good and your glory in Christ's name. Amen. We have a special opportunity right now to do something we haven't done in six months, and that is receive the Lord's Supper, communion. Uh, It's going to look a little different this morning than we were used to if you've been part of Harvest in the past, because we're in unusual times, right? We're in unusual times. In fact, We haven't done this for six months, and that was a very deliberate choice on our part. Our our elders pondered and discussed um, at great length back last spring, since we're not gathering regularly on Sundays, what do we do about the Lord's Supper? And we recognized at that point that that communion is, is when the church gathers around the Lord's table. Everywhere you see the Lord's Supper being talked about, described, or celebrated in Scripture, you see it not as an individual act of personal devotion that Christians pursue on their own. You see it as the church family coming together around the Lord's table to eat bread and to drink the juice in memory of the fact that the the, the shed blood and, and broken body of Christ is what makes us a family. It's a together experience, and we haven't been together. And so we've decided to wait on the Lord's Supper until we could regather. Well, that was also when we thought we might regather in a month or two, and that didn't happen. So here we are now, gathered, sort of, (laughs) gathered partially, but we feel like now is the time to resume the Lord's Supper. 
Because we are gathered smaller. There are about 50 of us in this room. There are about 50 of us in the room next door. And we also recognize that while everybody tuning into our live stream is not physically gathered, um, we are no longer like pre-recording services. So you're watching something live. And so although we're not fully gathered, there is a sense in which we are all experiencing something at the same time together. And we believe that's the essential element of the Lord's Supper, is that we do this together. And so we are now delighted to um, receiving the Lord's Supper again. Normally we wouldn't do it separated like this, but these are unusual times. And we feel like this is now the time until we can all gather again to receive the Lord's Supper. So uh, if you are watching on a live stream and you've got bread and juice and you want to join us, feel free to. Um, if you'd rather wait till you're here with us physically, we understand that too and very much support that. Uh, if you're here in the room, you were handed something that looks a little odd to us. Harvest Community Church, when you walked in, you're handed one of these little dudes, right? This little sort of pre-packaged communion element. Um, we've done this, obviously, for the sake of just everybody knowing that these are sanitary and, and being very, very sensitive to the fact that there's a viral pandemic going on. And so what you've got in your hand is a little pre-packaged cup of grape juice. Uh, I have sampled these. They will not kill you, and they're not disgusting. So that's a good thing. Um, at least the one I drank didn't kill me, so that's a good thing. No, I'm, I'm, being, I'm being facetious. This is prepackaged juice, and you'll notice in the very top there's a tiny little cracker under that cellophane. So here's the deal, guys. I'm just going to say it right away. Like These are a little awkward to get open, which is good because that means they're all sealed up and they're like really sanitary, but it can be a little bit of a pain to get them out. So if you can grab that tab and just pull up the tiny, don't yank the whole thing back and expose the grape juice yet. You can pull up that tiny little flap. If you guys in the multipurpose room, you've got these two, you can do this with us. This little cellophane flap, you can pull that up and then this little white wafer can just be pulled right out of the top there. So why don't you go ahead and grab that and in just a moment, we're going to receive the bread and then you'll be able to peel the foil at the top back and we'll receive the cup. Let me read to us from 1 Corinthians Chapter 11, to remind us why we're doing what we're doing. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've given your life to him as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you that as we engage in the simple act of eating and drinking together. The Bible says we are proclaiming the Lord's death. We are announcing that Jesus Christ is my Savior. And so if you've got that bread, let's take it and eat it in memory of his sacrifice for us. If you want to pull your cups up, just peel a little bit of that foil back. And let's drink in memory of the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior for us and his shed blood for us on the cross. Would you pray with me? <laughs> Holy Father, what a simple act. It always was. It always has been. Sitting around the table that night, the night before you were crucified, Jesus, and doing something so utterly mundane and ordinary, eating bread, drinking wine with your disciples, during a Passover meal, so utterly normal in that context, and yet you infused it with a meaning of something that was so utterly not normal, God becoming man, and the God-man experiencing death to pay for our sins. We eat and we drink in memory of you. We proclaim your death as a gathered church and exalt you for who you are. Thank you, Jesus, for the grace of the cross. I pray that you would speak to us now as we open up your word. Would you open up our eyes that we might behold wondrous things in your word? And we ask this for our good and your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Let me encourage you to take your Bibles and turn them, if you have not already, to Hebrews chapter 10. 
We're actually going to look at two passages of Scripture this morning. Hebrews 10 will be the primary one. We're going to make a brief stop in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you want to flip ahead and keep a finger in one of those places, that's where we're headed this morning. Last Sunday was momentous for several reasons. Most importantly, uh, we had people in the building for the first time, which was awesome. So things are looking a little different and feeling a little different. Uh, As everything that normally starts up in the fall either doesn't start up or starts up differently, we're kind of all getting used to that. Although I did get to watch my first NFL game of this bizarre COVID-affected NFL season last Sunday, uh, which was a 38-25 Seattle Seahawks win over the Atlanta Falcons. By the way, just in case you wanted to know, that's right, thank you. It was, it was a different experience, though, I have to say. Like, I didn't really know what to expect. I hadn't read anything ahead of time about like, how the NFL was going to be doing things this year. I'm just like, oh, they're playing a game. Cool, I'll watch the Seahawks. So we turned on the game, and my son and I watched it. And it was kind of interesting. Partway through the game, uh, my wife Amy walks in, and she goes, why am I hearing like crowd noise and cheers? I thought you said there were no fans there in the stadium. I'm like, I don't think there are any fans in the stadium, but... Come to think of it, you're right. That's weird. I wonder if that's like fake crowd noise. That would be weird. So I did what any 21st century person did. I pulled up my phone. I start Googling stuff, right? I'm like, what's up with the crowd noise on this NFL broadcast when there's like nobody in the stadium other than, you know, the players and the teams? And uh, some of you probably already knew this. I just learned it last week. Sure enough, um, it was um, artificial crowd noise. I mean, it's, it's like actually recordings of real crowds, but they're not there. It's, it's pre-recorded, and they're playing it in the background over this broadcast. And, and what's more, I learned that they were apparently actually pumping crowd noise into the stadium over the speakers where the players were, so the players could hear it as well. So you're looking up at like 75,000 totally empty seats, and then you're hearing all this like cheering and all this kind of stuff, you know, in the background. And, I, you know, sometimes as people, we can be, we can be really judgmental. Um, and I'd love to say I'm an exception to that, but I'm not. I mean, I just have this initial reaction to it, right? That I was like, that's dumb. Like, really? Artificial crowd noise? It's like putting on a laugh track. I mean, we joked at one point when there were no people in the room here and we were only live streaming. We're like, we need to have an applause track or a laugh track. Every time I make a joke, just play the tape so I feel like it's not an empty room. And we thought it was funny. I'm like, they're really doing it, you know? So I've got like my whole attitude. I'm like, that's really weird. And of course, you know, for the next few minutes, like now I'm noticing it. And it really was kind of jarring to constantly hear this din of people in the background when I knew there were no people there. So part of me is initially like, this is just dumb. Why are they doing this? It seems so artificial. But I thought about it a little bit more and I realized, well, okay, put yourself in their position. Um, The alternative probably would have been worse. I'm trying to picture the dead silence in between like announcer commentary or in between plays that would have been there if there wasn't an artificial crowd noise, you know? It would have just been like, it would have felt like I was watching a scrimmage or a practice, you know? Not a real game, not an actual Seattle Seahawks 38 to 25 victory over the Atlanta Falcons. Um, I just started to imagine what it actually would have been like without the crowd noise and I realized, Okay, the more I think about it, the more I can realize, of course, this isn't what anybody wants, but that probably is the best you can do under the circumstances. Like, it makes a lot more sense. Because you see, in, in all sports, really, certainly the NFL, home field advantage is a real thing. It's a real thing. Just, just the whole atmosphere, the energy of having people there um, cheering and shouting, like, it matters. It impacts the player experience. It impacts the viewer's experience. You know, Seattle players and coaches constantly rave about the 12s, right? It's not unique to Seattle, but the idea of the 12th man, like having the home crowd in it with you, fans whose noise and energy support the home team, makes them feel like they've got a 12th man on the field against the opponent's 11. You know, it's that idea like it actually, it actually does matter to have a whole mass of people with you together supporting you, even though they're not physically on the field playing, they actually make an impact. The energy and the participation of fans is integral to the experience. (laughs) So much so that it's probably better to have a canned substitute than nothing at all, if those are your only two choices. So I went ahead and watched. um, Did I mention your 1-0 Seahawks, 130-25 by the Atlanta Falcons last week? 
wasn't sure I'd mention that. I wanted to make sure I got that in there. Um, thank you for laughing at my stupidity, because I didn't have to have a laugh track. You guys are nice enough to laugh. I'll go ahead and say with me. It might have been at me, but we'll just go with me, okay? <laughs> that experience is so um, essential, but it was interesting to go from that right into preparing for this Sunday, where we're talking from Hebrews 10 about the importance of gathering together as a church, because I realized, you know what, it's obvious in a sports environment that, that the fans and the crowd makes a difference, especially a home field advantage, but that's not limited to sports. In fact, it's true in sports because it's true of humanity. It's not really a sports thing. It's a human thing. It's actually true for the Christian life as well. This, this whole series of sermons that we're doing right now, just four sermons to kick off the fall. We started last Sunday. This is the second one. We're talking about how our mission hasn't changed as a church, even though our environment has. We are in a crazy time. Uh, this whole sort of COVID pandemic, it's, it's hard. We've been talking about that. Honestly, I, I feel like it's, it, it's disorienting. But certainly what we've felt as, as church staff and church leaders, how do you even do family life? How do you do church life in the midst of this environment? It's like all the rules have changed. Over 20 years of full-time vocational ministry, I've never had a fall launch like this one we're in the middle of now. There's no seminary class that taught me or any other pastors I know how to do it. It's very disorienting, and I know it is for you guys as well. As a congregation, how do we be the church God has called us to be when all the rules seem to have changed? And everybody has different thoughts about them. And so what we're trying to do over these next few Sundays is bring some clarity to that disorientation by reminding ourselves that even though our environment has changed radically, and we want to be honest about that, nevertheless, our mission has not changed at all. This fall, we, we want to kind of get off the heels of our feet as much as we can. It feels like so much of life is happening to us, and we're just read and react mode, and instead kind of get forward onto the balls of our feet, leaning into the mission that God has given us. And so our efforts and our, our energy are trying to focus not so much on what we can't do and not letting our experience as a church be defined by we can't gather in this way, we can't do this, we can't do that, but rather talk about what can we do to pursue the mission of God. So what are we going to do? Last Sunday we introduced this idea. We're going to pursue this fall. And we're primarily pursuing four things. We've pictured this like a four-legged stool. We want to pursue God. We want to pursue the church gathered. We want to pursue one another. And we want to pursue the lost. If you've been around Harvest or any other solid Bible-based church, that language probably sounds really familiar. I hope it does. There's nothing new here because the mission hasn't changed. But we hope that, that this language gives us some clarity and some focus as a congregation this fall for these next few months to gather around these kind of four legs of this stool and say, let's go do this. And so what we're trying to do is not only talk about what these things mean in principle, how are we pursuing God, how are we pursuing the church gathered, but we're talking about really practically, what are we going to do? in order to make that happen. So last week we talked about pursuing God together. This morning we're going to talk about what it looks like to pursue the church gathered. So we have two simple points this morning. We're going to talk about why that's important from the Bible, and we want to talk about how we're going to really focus on that this next couple of months, starting right now. We're going to look at the reality of God's family, and we're going to look at the experience of God's family. That's where we're headed this morning. So we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2 for a few minutes before we land on our main passage in Hebrews 10 this morning. If you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, where we're going to see the reality of God's family. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 down to the end of the chapter and verse 22. This passage teaches us some incredible things about what it means to be a Christian. Verses 13 and 14 tell us this. Uh, by the way, just a little bit of context here. Um, right before this is probably one of the best known passages in the book of Ephesians, one of the better known passages in all the New Testament, how God saved us by grace, not works. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God that no one may boast. And so we are saved by God's grace as Christian people. And then he starts telling us some really interesting things. Verse 13, <clears throat> but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall 
of hostility. The Bible is saying here that, that when Christians get saved by God's grace, it's not just an individual experience. He's now talking about two different groups of people who follow God, who up until that point had been divided by a wall. And those two groups in that context were Christians of Jewish descent and Christians of non-Jewish descent. He says Christ breaks down that wall, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. You see God's intention here? This is interesting. In, in saving unworthy individuals by his grace, God is not just redeeming individuals. He's creating one new man. That is one new people from what were formerly many different divided peoples. Verse 16, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Here's the point. Our salvation... As Christians, if Christ has saved you by grace, our salvation not only reconciles us individually as a repentant sinner to God, it does that, but it also reconciles us to everybody else who has been reconciled to God. Verse 19 makes this even more clear if you drop down there. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, that is, foreigners, but you are now fellow citizens together with the saints and members of the household of God. To be a Christian is to be adopted into God's family, which is not just a, a warm idea of God's love for us as a father, although it includes that. It actually means that, it, that salvation defines and redefines relationships not only with God, but with other people. Salvation defines new relationships, not only with God, but with the rest of God's people. Both are equally prominent in this text. And the word pictures at the end of this chapter really drive this point home. Verse 20. We're now one people built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, the whole one people of God, now pictured as a building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple for the Lord. In him, Christ, you, plural, are all being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. So what is God doing in the world, according to this passage? He's building a people. Singular. One people comprised of every woman, every man who finds redemption and salvation in Christ. They are saved into God's family. Bricks, as it were, in the wall. The, the idea is that I'm not just saved and I'm now a brick that belongs to God and I'm stuck in God's back 40 and he goes and, and you know uses me whenever he wants to or whatever. He takes me as a brick and places me in a wall with lots of other bricks interconnected so that there's a whole wall and that wall is interconnected with other walls and a foundation and a roof because God is building this whole thing called his family to his glory. The individual Christian is now made a part of that along with every other individual Christian. Why do we make this point now? Because the Bible approaches every human culture and it affirms some things about that culture, and it challenges other core values in that culture. Uh, there's a lot of things in American culture that are very much affirmed by the Bible, but this chapter, and many others like it in the Bible, I think represent one of the places where the Bible challenges some of our core assumptions as Americans, particularly our inherent bent to think in individualistic terms. Like most of us know that we're kind of individualistic as a culture, but when that's all you know, you don't always see it. And, and, and texts like this in the Bible are really jarring for me because it challenges my initial assumptions, which are about my individual salvation, my relationship with God, me and God. And yet, unlike other cultures, for example, Asian cultures, which tend to be more um, communal in how they have their, their outlook on life, um, the, the honor of the nation or the clan or the family tends to be thought of as, as much greater than, than the individual. And we in Western cultures typically reverse that. We're all about like, dude, you got to be you, man. You've know? you got to follow your heart. 
You've got to pursue your dreams and don't let anybody, uh, not even you know, um, your family, like define who hold you back from being who you're going to be. We tend to put the individual above even the family or the group or the nation. And without realizing it, we can bring that right into our whole way that we think about following Jesus. And we understand the gospel. We understand salvation by grace. We repent of our sins. Jesus forgives us. And we're right about all of those things. But we can tend to, if we're not careful, think about this in terms of me and God. And of course I'm connected with other people, but the main thing is me and God. This chapter tells us that as individuals who are saved and who never lose their individual identity, nonetheless we are not just saved into a reconciled relationship directly with God as our Father. We are we are saved into a part of God's family. He's building something much bigger, and we are a part of it. What would that mean, practically? Here's a way to ask, or, or, or kind of think about that question. What does it mean practically? What, what difference does this make in our thinking if we grasp that God has saved us as individuals into a part of his larger family? I want you to imagine, um, this is a made-up scenario, but it's a very realistic one, um, uh, a couple, a man and a woman, they fall in love. They want to get married. Uh, maybe you know them. And so um, they, they come and they tell you their plan. They're like, hey, we love each other. We're engaged. Um, here's our plan. We're going to get married. But here's the deal. The, the, the lady has had for years this, this dream of, of like a globetrotting adventure for two years. She wants to do that for two years. And she's been dreaming about this with a couple of her girlfriends ever since they were like, you know, little, little girls. So this has been years. This is like the top of her bucket list. They've been making plans. They've been saving money. They're ready to go on this trip. And then she met this guy. She's like, I love him. I want to marry him. So here's our solution. We're going to go ahead and get married and go on our honeymoon and come back. And like a week after our wedding, she's taken off with her girlfriends for two years. And she's going to globetrot. <laughs> and he's going to stay home. Now, I mean, of course, they're going to text all the time, right? He'll be following her Instagram, so he'll be able to see everything she's doing. They're not going to be totally without communication, but he's not going to be with her. And they're like, that's our plan. We're best of both worlds. What do you think? What would you say? What would you tell this couple? I'm getting lots of eye rolls, and maybe that's not a good idea. Yeah, right answer. <laughs> I could tell you what I would say if they were like members of this church and they came to me and said, hey, pastor, what do you think about this? Would you do our premarital? Would you do our wedding? This is our plan. I'd be going like, ah, can we talk? Um, can I encourage you to think a little bit differently about that? Like, if you've got to do this trip, man, go together, you know, or stay together. But whatever you do, it's like not a great idea to get married and then be separate for two years. Like if that's within your control to stop, you don't want to do that. Why? Well, we'd still be married. Yeah, officially, technically, yes, you would be. But you wouldn't have much of a marriage, would you? Is there a difference between being married and having a marriage? Well, there's not really supposed to be. <laughs> But if I create a scenario like this where we're sort of artificially separating those two, the fact that I'm married versus the experience of being married, then we realize, yeah, you could separate those, but you really shouldn't. That's not healthy. I mean, that, that should be hand in glove. Once you get married, you're to live married. You move in together. You do life together to become one. You don't say we're now one and then go off and continue to live as two. I think much the same thing is true of being part of God's family. We read all these great things from a passage like Ephesians chapter 2 about how you're saved into a family. That's the reality of it. That's just a fact. The Bible teaches that. That's theological truth. If you're a Christian, you're saved into God's family. Done. It's past tense. You're already part of the family. And it's like, yeah, it's not hard to agree with necessarily. Great. Awesome. But now the question becomes, how does that affect our experience? Does that change the way we live? Does that change the choices we make? Does that change the way we pursue God? It's not surprising to see a pattern in the New Testament. Everywhere you look, everywhere we have any indications of what took place, everywhere you look, wherever possible, wherever the gospel went, a local church immediately sprang up. And actually, I just kind of said that in a sloppy way. The churches didn't spring up. They were planted. 
You read the book of Acts. Uh, you read the New Testament epistles, which are letters that were written to so many of these churches, like the church in Ephesus, reading from the book of Ephesians that we just read. Everywhere the gospel went, people repented of their sins, became Christians, and they were immediately organized into local churches. Elders and church leaders were appointed and trained, and where necessary, people like the Apostle Paul, for instance, would stay as long as he had to, to get them trained well enough to start functioning on their own before he would take off and go to the next place. Everywhere the gospel went, new converts were immediately organized into local churches. Why? That is not the most efficient or quick way to have spread the gospel. If the Apostle Paul could have just bounced from one city to the next, to the next, to the next, he could have covered way more territory, way faster, and probably gotten a lot more converts over a short period of time. Why organize them at the local churches? Because of this first point that we already saw. Because if you're saved, you're saved into God's family. You see, local churches are the natural expression of a Christian's interconnectedness with the family of God. Local churches like ours, Harvest Community Church, is the natural expression of the reality that we as Christians are interconnected with one another. So that gets expressed in local communities. We live out the joint life that we have with all believers by doing life together with some believers, the members of my own local church, those in my local community. It, it is certainly true. Sometimes we, we talk in, in um, Bible study circles about you know, the universal church versus the local church. You ever heard those phrases? You know, the idea of the universal church, kind of a funny word, but basically it's just referring to like all Christians ever, everywhere who are saved at all time, everybody who's a part of God's grand and glorious family. And that's, the Bible talks about that universal church, never uses that term, but it talks about it uh, in numerous places. It's a reality. One day the universal church will be our actual experience when we're together with our Lord in heaven. But actually the vast majority, the vast majority of references to the church or churches in the New Testament are all local churches. You see, there's an awareness that every Christian is part of this larger family. We just saw the Apostle Paul teach about that in Ephesians chapter 2. But everywhere you see local churches coming together to express and experience that family. Those churches were certainly aware of their interconnectedness with one another. There's some really cool examples in the New Testament of multiple churches in different cities and even in different countries that would sometimes cooperate, for example, in missionary efforts. They would financially support people like the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, and they'd be sending them out, and they would, two different churches in different places would partner together and support those guys. So there was a lot of cooperation. There are even examples where they supported one another, such as 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, where churches in Macedonia, that's like northern Greece, were raising money because the church down in Jerusalem in Israel, a totally different country, they heard that there was a famine there and those brothers and sisters in Christ needed food. And so they were happy to raise money and send it down there. So like they recognized, hey, we're all Christians. We're all part of the larger family of God. But the truth is the day in, day out experience of being part of God's family happens with Christians in my community who band together and say, we are going to live out our shared life together with this group of people. And there you have a local church. That takes us to Hebrews chapter 10. So if you're there, turn your Bible over. To Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 27. Now we're talking about not just the reality of God's family, but the experience of God's family. And from this text, we learn a couple important things. We read it earlier. Let me just look at these first two verses again, verses 23 and 24. Let us, Christians, hold fast the confession of our hope, that is our commitment to the gospel of Christ. Let us hold fast our com uh, confession of hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let's pause right there. This passage is telling us as Christians that there's, there's an importance of staying committed to the hope of the gospel. Like it is hard to run the race and serve Christ faithfully to the end of life. That's hard. That's hard to do. Distractions abound. There are myriads of temptations 
that, that, that tempt us to sin and to chase things that are less than the call to make disciples of Jesus and glorify him that way. There are hardships in life that get our eyes off the ball. Uh, illnesses and, and, and diseases and, and loss of jobs and income and all sorts of just really difficult things that we have to, to deal with in this life and give attention to, and they can pull that time and that attention away from our pursuit of God and the gospel. Not to mention, there's just the natural inward gravitational pull of the soul. We just naturally think about ourselves first, not God and his kingdom plans. All of these things are normally lined up against us, and then a pandemic comes along and upsets the whole apple cart and just makes it even harder, doesn't it? (laughs) Holding fast and pursuing the calling of Christ faithful to the end is hard. So, what's the Bible's answer? Hold fast together. Hold fast together. You need one another. So since this is so hard, since we have to hold fast our calling because God is faithful, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. So what, what does that mean? That means that you and I need to be stirred up because I, I forget, I lose energy, I lose focus, I get discouraged. I can't do this faithful to Jesus until the end of my days thing on my own. But according to the Bible, I'm not supposed to. I was never meant to. I need you guys to consider how to stir me up toward love and good deeds. Yes, that's a shameless plug for gift cards and thank you notes. No, I'm kidding. That's really not. But but the point is true. The point is true. I can get discouraged. You get discouraged. I lose focus. You lose focus. We all do. And that's why God has given us one another to help one another stay the course, to remind me, yes, that is what my soul wants. I've lost sight of it. Thank you for that encouragement. You know, I think of people that accomplish huge um, feats of individual endurance, like, you know, distance swimmers. I mean, people that will go, like, um, you know, across the English Channel or something like that. I mean, people have swam the English Channel, which just seems crazy to me, right? But, of course, if that happens, they don't just, like, throw on the Speedo and snap on the goggles one day and just dive in at Calais and swim till they see the White Cliffs of Dover, right? It's not just out for an evening swim. You plan these things. They've got, like, a whole flotilla of boats that will be around them the whole way, Um, They will uh, give them water and nutrition as they need it. They will help provide safety. Um, They will course correct if the swimmer gets off course. And maybe most of all, they just keep giving them encouragement. You get three quarters of the way across and you're just about to quit. And they're like, no, you're almost there. Keep going. It's interesting that, that the swimmer in that case does swim the whole distance, him or herself. But they don't really do it alone, do they? They've got that whole flotilla of support. What a picture of a church community. So we need to stir one another up, but we also then need to be with one another regularly. Verse 25. Do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day draw near. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Habit. I love that word. It's a great word. How often am I supposed to meet with my local church family? How many times can I miss before it becomes like not okay with God? I don't know about you, but the, like, the little legalist that lives in the back of my brain starts to ask a lot of really weird questions, right? <laughs> uh, and I want the legalistic answer. How often am I supposed to be at church before it's okay? And I don't get that kind of an answer. 90% of the time, 70% of the time, Bible doesn't say. Bible says, think about it. Don't neglect meeting because some people are in that habit. Is it my habitual practice to commit to being with my church when it's gathered? Of course, we all get sick or take a trip here and there and miss sometimes. That's not the point. The point is, what is the priority? What is the practice of my life? Where does being together with my gathered church family rank with the priority of employment, travel and recreation, family schedules, and a hundred other things that demand our time and attention? Why is this priority so important in Scripture? Encourage one another all the more as you see the day draw near. It took me a long time to upgrade to a gas grill. 
For years, I was stubborn. I had my little Weber kettle barbecue, and I would barbecue with charcoal, right? I did finally switch over and join the 21st century at some point. Um, but back when, you know, you ever barbecue with charcoal, many of you have, right? You pile the coals together, you light them, and when they're close together, they would share the heat and build the intensity of the fire together. You get one coal that falls down the pile or gets knocked off over into some little uh, corner off by itself, and it'd cool down within minutes. That's very much what the Christian life is like. Together, we continue to encourage one another to stoke the fires of one another to pursue Christ and keep going. We get isolated and pretty soon we're cooling off. And who am I to think that that's not going to happen to me? It's like, who am I kidding? Who am I kidding? Meaningfully connecting with a local church is essential to your spiritual life. I believe that's what the Bible's telling us. Meaningfully connecting with a local church is essential your spiritual life. You think about how those fires get stoked um, so many ways. It's just a couple of, of my own experiences. Sometimes being together with the gathered church gets me out of my own limited thinking, my own head, <laughs> my own narrow vision. You know, sometimes I think I'm actually okay with God, and I'm not. And I need my local church to help me realize I'm not okay here. In fact, verse 26 and 27 talk about that. If we go on sinning deliberately, actually the end of verse 25 says, encourage one another all the more. You see the day drawing near. What day is he talking about? He's talking about the, the day of judgment. The day that every one of us will stand before God and give an account of our lives. How did I spend them for your kingdom? He says, man, when you realize that's coming, yes, encourage each other to stay faithful. He says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Man, if I've embraced Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but then I go off and I live for myself, it's not so much that my very salvation is in question necessarily, but this whole idea of like, I'm going to give an account. And if I'm not pursuing Christ and holding fast to that hope, what other hope is there? There isn't one. There is no other sacrifice for sins. I need my brothers and sisters in Christ to remind me just how important this is. We will give an account of our lives. We'll give an account of how competing goals for social acceptance and financial security compromise an unfiltered passion for the glory of Christ. We will give an account of how we let allegiance to our preferred political tribe color our outlook more than allegiance to God's passionate dream for the redemption of the nations. Most Christians are aware that that's a danger. Very few of us realize how deeply it seeped into our own lives. I don't think I'm an exception to that. My church helps shine the light of objectivity on my life. We will give an account of how we let our pain, our unhappiness, or our frustration with 2020 get us more eager to see a coronavirus vaccine than we are eager to see the salvation of our neighbors. We will give an account. I need the church gathering in order to help me be less self-absorbed than I would otherwise be. I need to encourage one another to stay the course faithfully. And you know, the opposite is true. Sometimes I think I'm not okay with God, and I am. The church gathering helps me stay grounded in the gospel of God's redeeming grace and his steadfast love for us. Sometimes I think I'm not okay. I feel like a failure. And you know one of the interesting things about feeling like a failure is it naturally causes us to pull away from other people. Doesn't it? Have you ever experienced that? You feel like you don't measure up. The immediate instinct is, i got to pull away because I feel shamed. I feel I don't measure up. And sometimes that can lead us to keep Christian relationships at a safe distance but not really pursue our gathered church. But when I prioritize the assembly, I regularly participate in the celebration of God's grace in me. I'm reminded that Christ in me is the hope of glory. I'm reminded that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So why am I holding on to this one? I can let it go. I'm reminded that Christ has qualified me to share in his inheritance with the saints in light. Sometimes I'm okay with God and I don't think I am and I need my church to remind me that because of the grace of Christ, you can walk forward. You can walk forward. And sometimes gathering with the assembly just shows me the power of God as I see it in some of your lives. You know, I stand here 
I can remember so many times over the years when the whole church has gathered, pre-coronavirus, you know, and we will be again someday. And we're in this room and we're singing worship songs together. Maybe the songs are familiar and so maybe I'm not really tracking. I'm just kind of singing a familiar song. I'm not thinking so much about what I'm singing at the moment. You know, and then I look over and I see a brother whose life was destroyed by drugs at one point. He's now totally redeemed. And he's singing with me, what a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. And it changes my experience of singing that song. I see members and families facing terminal cancer, getting ready to say goodbye and fearing that and gathering to sing Christ alone, cornerstone, weak, made strong in the Savior's love through the storm he is Lord, Lord of all. And then my voice mingles with their voices and I am encouraged. I've had the opportunity in my years here to see a tween girl lose a beloved father to cancer, grow through the grieving process into a young woman who years later will come up here at this piano and Claire will lead us in singing the fatherless find their rest at the sound of your great name. And it changes my experience. I see a brother bear, bid farewell to a cherished wife, I walk in some dark places of grief, and then stand with Jim on a Sunday morning with his arms up and say, you give and take away. My heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. I need that. And you don't get that by watching TV or isolating from the church or running off and doing my own thing. The gathering puts the power of God on display for all to see. How are we pursuing the church gathered? In just a couple minutes I've got left, I want to land this plane really practically. Hopefully we've seen from Scripture there's this theological reality that we're saved into the family of God, and then that gets experienced in local churches as we commit to one another and we prioritize gathering and doing life together. So how are we going to do that this fall with all the restrictions that are on us? We're putting a lot of energy right now into three things, and we want to encourage you in all of them. If you're a follower of Christ and Harvest is your home church, let me just talk for a, few, uh, a minute or two about each one. First of all, our Sunday services. Um, we've spent a ton of time and energy over the last month getting ready for this, for last week, for having 100 people on our campus in two different groups of 50. Um, that's important because even though it's not the full gathering yet, for us to be here is so important. And it has so encouraged me to hear so many of you who have been here at one time or another say, that did my soul good to just be back in the building and hear the voices of God's people and sing together again with them. I'm like, yes, that's what the Bible's talking about. So it's not perfect yet. It's not everyone yet. But if I can say this, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you can come, come. If you can come here on a Sunday, come. It's worth prioritizing. We'll do whatever we can to accommodate as many people as possible. Yes, it's harder than it used to be. It's way more inconvenient for an overall way less satisfying experience. But it's also temporary. It is temporary. And more to the point, it is an experience of gathering. So whether I'm gathered with a mask in the multi-purpose room or whether I have to keep distance from people in the worship center, I'm together with God's people, it matters. If you can come, come. If you can't, either because maybe it was... Uh, already filled up or because maybe for your own health or just your own caution you just really don't feel comfortable being out in public um, I don't want to pressure anybody to do anything that they don't feel comfortable with but let me urge you on the basis of scripture to prioritize being together even if you can't be here physically uh, some of our small groups have been hosting watch parties on Sunday morning which I think is a fabulous idea we'll put the live stream on and we'll invite a friend or three or five friends over. We'll just invite some people over to our house. Completely changes the experience. You know, if I get up and I've got like the, the morning, you know, puffy face and the cowlick and the coffee and the bunny slippers and I'm just sitting there on my recliner and click, I turn on church. That's one thing, but man, that gets old fast, doesn't it? That gets old fast. The minute I invite somebody over, not only do I take a shower, shave, and comb my hair, which is probably a good thing anyway, but it completely changes the experience. Even one other person. of like, you've come over for this purpose. We're both part of this church. Let's watch this together. Come over a little early. We'll talk. We'll catch up. Stay a little later. Bring some food. Maybe we'll have lunch. We'll talk about the service. We'll just pray together. We'll just hang out. We'll get to know each other. 
Let me encourage you to invite people over on Sundays that you can't be here. If you don't even know who to contact, but you'd love to contact, then maybe invite someone, if you're here on site, before you leave this morning. Say, hey, next week, uh, why don't you come over to my house? Or you could post on the church Facebook page. You've got my permission. If you've got a Facebook account, use that and say, hey, I'd love to have somebody over. I'd love to head over to somebody's house next week. Anybody want to take me in? I'd love to just be with the church family. One other thing you could do is if you're watching on our streaming site right now, you can click that tab up there that says communication card on it. That's the digital version of our physical communication cards, which we have some of in the building here for those of you that are here live. Uh, You could just write like, hey, put watch party there. Tell us if you'd like to host one or let us know you'd love to go to one, but you don't know that many people. We'll see what we can do to get you connected with people. One last thing on attending the the, the Sunday services for those of us who are really just can't and should not be in the presence of other people because of our own health or the health of people that we're taking care of, maybe even there we can think creatively. Uh, maybe even zooming in to somebody else's watch party. Have you ever thought of that? I hadn't until just recently. But some people suggested that to me. I can put the service on in my living room, get on my phone or my tablet, and make a Zoom call with another member of the church so that we're watching it together live. I can connect with them for a few minutes ahead of time. We can watch the service together. We can chat for 15 or 20 minutes afterwards about the service, about how you do and what's going on. Yes, it's hard. It's complicated. But it's trying to bring an experience of together. Let me encourage us to reach out and pursue the gathered church however you can. Use that connection card or call the church office to let us know how we can help. If you're having trouble setting up your technology and you can't even get the live feed at home and you don't know, give us a call. We've got a church full of engineers. We'll figure it out with you. We want you to be a part of what we're doing. Secondly, prioritize the Sunday service. Secondly, um, prioritize the congregational meetings, which we haven't had in six months. Because we have what we called it, used to call a family gathering. We'd get together, have dinner. We'd talk about things that are happening in the life of the church. There was one scheduled for May. It got just canceled because of the coronavirus. And here we are in September, and we realize we haven't been together as a church outside of the Sunday service since last December. It's been 10 months. It's too long. So we're going to host a virtual congregational meeting on October 4th. That's Sunday evening, two Sundays from now. Not next Sunday, but the following a virtual congregational meeting. We're going to use our online church site. If you're watching our live stream on the streaming site, we'll use the same site for that. Um, None of us will be here physically, but we're going to just gather um, for an hour or so and just talk about where we're at on some big things that are happening. We'll have a little bit of limited ability to get some Q&A going and some discussion going. We just want you to know what's happening in the life of the church and connect with who we are, where we're going, what's happening. Plan on that Sunday, October 4th. More details will be coming next week and in the weekly updates. One final thing. You can not only prioritize gathering on Sundays and the congregational meeting, but prioritize identifying with the family by joining the church. It's vital that that we pray for and reach out to and connect with one another. That's always vital, but maybe we feel that now more than ever before. I got to tell you, I do. I read 1 Peter 5, and it's like, to the elders among you, I charge you, shepherd the flock of God. And I'm like, yes, Lord Jesus, I'm an elder in this church. I want to shepherd my flock. Where's my flock? They're not here. (laughs) We're scattered. Who's my flock? How do we pursue them? The importance of us committing to one another is perhaps more evident now than ever because we're scattered. How do we do life with one another unless we know who one another is? How do we reach out to and pray for one another unless we know who one another are? And at Harvest, that's, that's really what our, our church membership process is all about. It's just saying like, this is my church. I'm committed to this church family. I'm one of us. And so we're not only resuming our meetings here on Sunday mornings, we're not only resuming a virtual congregational meeting, but we're resuming our membership process in just the next couple of weeks. Final details are still being worked out about that, but we'll probably have at least a couple of gatherings, uh, one of them live either here at the church or maybe in somebody's home. We're still working on that. And probably at least one will be virtual for those of you who can't make the live gathering or don't feel comfortable doing that. Just a way to cover what does it mean to be a member and to pursue connecting together. If you've been a part of this church and you've meant to become a member and you've just never gotten around to it, now would be a great time because we need to know who we are and we need to connect with one another. You need your church and your church needs you. If you're interested in that at all, once again, just use that connection card uh, or if you're here on site, you can um, give us a note or use one of the physical connection cards. Just write membership and we'll get back to you as soon as we have the details finalized within the next 
few days. After we get done with this next round of members, we're going to be updating our member directory and trying to make sure that every member has a copy of that. This is something we've been deficient on over the years. It's just so important now. We want everybody to know who we are so that we can love one another and pray for one another, and we want everybody to experience that. God loves you, and he wants you to be part of his family. So come join his family here. We can pursue the church by pursuing the gatherings, by pursuing our congregational meetings, pursuing one another in membership. Brothers and sisters, as I ask the music team to come back up here, they're going to lead us in worship through song. Let me ask us, what is your next step to pursue the church gathering? What next step might God be urging you to take? Let's ask him that this week and let him lead us in his answer. God, we present ourselves to you, people who have come to seek you, to hear from you, not to hear from me, a preacher, but from you, God, I pray that you would bring your word to life in our hearts, that anything I've said that you want to use, God, would you make it eternally impactful in our lives, anything I've said that's been distracting or unhelpful, God, would you have mercy on us by just wiping that away, and would you make us the people that you want us to be, rejoicing in your love for us, excited to pursue it, understanding pursuing that is hard right now, but it's not impossible. And so together we want to love you, love one another, and I pray that you would give us the heart, the passion, the energy, and the insight to do it. Lead us to love you and to be your body in practice as you have made us in reality. In Christ's name we ask.